The Bob Murphy Show, episode 93. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This one's going to be a little bit out of left field for some of you. I follow this woman, Lindsay Goldwert, on Twitter And I think somehow I broke into a group of Twitter accounts of comedians based in New York City. And I think that's how I started following her. And uh, then I could just follow her progress over the years as she got into financial stuff. And then she has a book coming out and she mentioned that she was doing podcast interviews. And so I contacted her, said, hey, you want to come on the show? So that's, that's how it all began. And uh, it's, I think it's a very interesting conversation, but it's not the usual Bob Murphy show fair. And we're going to focus a lot in the beginning about her time um, in the New York City stand-up scene. And then, of course, transition to talk about her work in the financial sector and, of course, her book. So her formal bio here is Lindsay Goldwer is a journalist and former editorial director of the personal finance app Stash. She also created the podcast, Teach Me How to Money, a top 100 business Apple podcast, and Spent, a podcast for the financially challenged that has been featured in The Atlantic, The AV Club, The Globe and Mail, out of Toronto, and others. She's worked as a journalist for more than 15 years at Glamour, Redbook, Court TV, ABC News, CBS News, and Daily News in New York. Her writing has appeared in Quartz, Adweek, Refinery29, Fast Company, Slate, and many others. She's appeared on multiple panels and podcasts to talk about women and finance, financial education, and more. And finally, in addition to her years in journalism, Lindsay performed stand-up comedy all over New York City and co-produced a popular weekly show in her beloved neighborhood in Queens. And in 2009, she co-wrote the short film Nowhere Kids, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. Her latest venture is her book called Bow Down. The subtitle is Lessons from Dominatrixes on How to Get Everything You Want. So that's pretty provocative, huh, for the Bob Murphy Show. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Lindsay Goldwert. Well, uh, Lindsay, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I mentioned to the listeners, of course, to, in the preamble to this, I'm not sure exactly, like, we are ended up following each other on Twitter. I believe I started following stand-up comedians in New York, and then I don't know if it was like Angela Cobb first, and then you were something, but I think that's how I started following you. And so um, can you, I guess that's a logical place to start. So I've had two other stand-up comedians on the show and that's, this is an area that always fascinated me. So were you like an eight-year-old girl and you said, I have to do this or how did that happen? Yes. I was an eight-year-old girl who said, I have to do this. Did I I really get the the year right? Or you're just kind of... I don't know if I was eight, but um, you know, it was very funny. You know, I always, um, you know, I'm not doing stand-up at the moment because I had to take a break, but um, I always wanted to be a stand-up comedian when I was little. I used to watch stuff with my brother. You know, my brother and I don't didn't have a lot in common, but stand-up comedy and Saturday Night Live were something we could bond and watch together. Mm-hmm. 
So um, I used to stay up late and watch comedy at the improv and all these things. And I used to, my, I, I used to pretend my Barbies were doing stand-up comedy, which sounds very cute, but it's also kind of like, it's not a thing that- Did they get into some really weird material? Because maybe it wasn't that cute. I think they did the material of people I saw on TV. And they did a lot of uh-huh. material of, uh, yeah, I, I just thought that was like the coolest thing to do. Now, can I ask you, just because you it sounds- like for example, when we were younger, my I have a brother who's six years younger. We would like do Dana Carvey doing George Bush impressions and stuff. Like we would yeah. do that in family. Is that what you mean? Like you'd have the Barbies reenact? I think they would do actual stand up. They wouldn't do sketch. Although my brother and I were obsessed with Dana Carvey and obsessed with all that stuff too. All that. Uh, but but do you Ar- mean they would just verbatim like redo a George Carlin routine, or they were doing their own material? I think maybe a little bit of a mix. I think oh, okay, I, you know, that's good. I think a little bit of a mix, but I was like under the covers with my Barbie and Barbie was like doing, yeah, that was something I just thought that was really cool. But the problem was that I was really shy, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's not really a cool thing for a girl to be at that point. I mean, maybe now it is. Um, but I did some, I did some stand up at like summer camp, uh, and people, I did told like two jokes and people laughed and that was really amazing to me. Um, I was was always, it like a talent show kind of thing? And some people are dancing and you said, oh, I'm going to do some jokes. Yeah. I, I kind of opened the show with some jokes that I made up and people mm-hmm. laughed. Um, that was really big for me. Um, but I was really shy. I didn't have, I, I didn't want to be in school plays. Like I, 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 I like being funny with my friends. Um, I had trouble. I didn't know that stand up comedy was a thing you could really do. I didn't know how to get into it. Um, so when I was in, I didn't do anything in college, but when I was in graduate school for journalism, we had to find a beat. You had to pick a beat. You're a journalist. And, you know, people picked all kinds of stuff. They picked, uh, you know, religion or labor. And I picked live comedy because you want to do the thing that you want to do. And I spent the, um, I spent the semester going to open mics, interviewing people, um, going to, and this was many, many years ago, uh, in the early 2000s, I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to UCB and talked to people and I ended up interviewing some people who are kind of, kind of big names now. And I did open mics just for the, for the article, not thinking I would do well, but I did okay. Not great, but I did okay enough that I got booked on a few shows. Um, being 22 and cute doesn't, didn't hurt as I round know now when it comes to who gets booked. Hey, tell me about it. Go ahead. It, yeah. <laughs> So, um, but once the class was over, um, I stopped doing it and I was always really sorry. So in my early thirties, uh, mid thirties, I just said, you know, this is, I got a few things happened in my life that made me feel like, uh, if I didn't do it now, I would never do it. And it was, uh, it was the best thing I ever did. Okay, great. So we, I'm really curious about this process. So how I did am- that, I guess that you're going to the, you were first just going as an observer to these open mics, yeah. you know, and just taking notes, or whatever, for your journalism. But at, at what point did you get, to, I mean, was it always, did you kind of think, oh, wow, if I ever had the courage, you know, I should be up there and it was just like fear holding you back or what What was it? Well, I just, I did tell jokes. I I put, mm-hmm. I threw together like five minutes. No, no, but I'm saying it, like, did you, how, for at what point did you know, okay, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and, and do this. I, I did it. I knew that as part of it, um, I was going to get up there and tell jokes. So oh, I okay. To, I didn't realize like, it. All right. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have the experience of, of just bombing. I just only, I just assumed I would bomb, um, which is always a good way to, I don't know if that's the best way to go in, but the fact that I got like a few laughs was, was really shocking to me. Cause I just got up there and mumbled a few jokes. I just made jokes about my family 
and their and their Long Island accents. And I just talked like I did like my Susie Essman, you know, I did my, uh, I just, I you just do what you know. And, um, but then I stopped and I was really sorry. So in my mid thirties, I just said, if I don't try this again, I'm always going to be sorry. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I got back out there and I did it for a long, for, I did it for like five years. Okay. Um, and, and how did you like, like, can you just tell us a little bit about like, what's the, the, the process? Like you're, uh, do you, like, do you have to know the club owner or do they, you know, someone sees oh, you like just things like that, that the average listener who might love stand up comedy, but not really know the nitty gritty about it. Sure. So the way it worked with me was that, um, I just like walked out my door and went to an open mic. I went to the first one I could find. Mm-hmm. Um, there were three people, they were all on their phones. Um, but it was great. You mean in the audience, in the audience, there right. were three other comics. They were on their phones. No one looked at me. No one said anything. And most people would think that was really unsupportive and shitty. Am I allowed to swear? Well, we can bleep it. Okay. <laughs> um, most people would think it was very unsupportive and a lousy environment. But for me, it was it was so no stakes that I was just, the hardest part was just getting up and standing. So it was actually a really great experience. And someone came up to me afterward and said, that was sort of funny. And that was, that was it. <laughs> and that's all you needed. Like that was that the encouragement. That was all I needed. And um, so I started going to Mike's. I started making some friends. I'm a friendly person, um, very supportive person. If somebody made me laugh, I'd go up to them and tell them and say that was really great. Being kind is always the best thing you could, in my opinion, that's always been the key to my any success I've had. Um, and then the people that you meet start to put on little shows at bars and you start to get on them. You know, as you make friends, people won't want to book their friends. Um, and then a friend of mine said to me, oh, if you want to get a little bit of a kickstart in your career, in, in your comedy career, you start your own show. That was, good, that was very good advice. So I started a show in my neighborhood in Queens. I started booking some really, I have a, I have very good taste in comics, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, so I started booking some, my own show and that was really fun. I liked, I, I liked, it's like, it was like doing a mixtape, mixed TV. Right. So how did, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Cause I think, I mean, for one thing, I'm not sure. What do you mean? Like you approached a bar owner and said, Hey, next Thursday, I'd like to rent the place out and I'm going to advertise yeah. as yeah, so Lin- I would, Lindsay's I would Laugh Fest neighbor. or something. What, yeah, what, what so, was it? What'd you call it? Would, so did it I, have a name? I call it Sunnyside. So I live in Sunnyside, Queens. I call it uh-huh. Sunnyside Comedy. Um, I had a friend in the neighborhood. He he and I did it, did it together. He was more of a tech guy. Um, more, you know, I was more of the, you know, the booker and the yacker. I was more front of house. He was more back of house. And yeah, we went up simply, you know, I knew that a lot of the comics lived in Queens and I knew that um, there wasn't a lot of Queens comic comedy there. So I figured it would be, and it was a captive audience. So I just uh, approached a few bars, some, and then we just kind of popped around the neighborhood. But yeah, I just said, um, they were all really great. They just, they had the empty space. They were very happy to utilize it. They, um, you know, people bought drinks, you know? Um, so I just sort of hustled it my own. It's like, I do everything myself. I just sort of hustle it. And then I would just call up, I would just ring up the comedians that I liked and I'd ask them to do the show. Some really good advice someone gave me is always pass a, if that is a, always pay, even if it's five dollars. So whether mm. you charge money at the door, it's a very funny economic lesson here because I realize everyone, people say, oh, it's a free show, no one's going to pay money to do it. And my theory is that people will be more likely to come if they have to pay money because they'll think that it's actually worth something. So even if you charge five dollars at the door, I think people will be more likely to come to a five dollar show than a, a free show. So mm. I always we either charged money for the show. Or we made a we made a point of saying we're going to be taking money at the door on the way out, so get money um, because we said um, 
because we said the comics need to need to eat. So um, we developed a reputation for a show that actually people made it, you know, they at least made like their subway fare there and home, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so on that, I mean, part of the, the context is normally it, it's some of a lot of these things, the comedians are, are willing to do it for free just to get exposure. Yes. And that is, and to me, I thought that was, I just think a lot of the, as a writer, I just think the more stuff we do for free, Sometimes you have to pick what you do for free if it's worthwhile. But I just found that if you really respect somebody, you you, you pay them for their time and their art, you know. So even if we gave yeah. someone ten dollars, eight times so far, Joe Rogan's wanted me on his show. I'm like, how much are you going to pay me, Joe? And I'm I'm still we're in negotiation. Well, I know that comedians um, Monday to even the big ones Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday um, is when they practice all their stuff to do on the weekends. So because right. that's when they get paid more money. So sometimes they're happy to do stuff for free. Um, but I just think it's a sign of respect to pay someone yeah. five or 10 bucks, you know, to be like, I know it's not very much, but, um, but we're, I'm really happy you're here. And everyone has been like, no one has been like, that's it. They've all, cause it's a, cause they, they're just like, that's really, cause it, it's, I don't know. I think that that's, they can recognize that it's, it's a nice token gesture. Yeah. Like they're trying. Like, they're, yeah. They're like, this is not a, a, you know, this is not the seller, you know, this is mm. not, which none of these places pay very well, but, um, but I really appreciate you being here and not everybody. I also don't believe I didn't really believe in drink tickets um, as payment because I think they still have the tip on that drink ticket. And I don't think that everyone drinks alcohol. Right. So I don't think it's, you know, I mean, so I don't, I thought that was a bullshit form. I thought that was a crummy form. An of unsatisfactory currency. method of that was compensation. Unsatisfactory form of payment and currency yeah, is yeah. a drink ticket because it, because in the end, and then you have to tip on the drink ticket and that's not really, that's not going to pay the bills. Not the $5 would pay the bills, but you know, you put that on a subway card. That's, you know, that is, you know, so, right. um, so that was really great. I met a lot of great people. Um, and I just had this idea at the time, um, to do, uh, to, I had an interest in very beginner finance cause I was working at this great app called capital at the time. And I just had this idea, like, how can I take my love of comedy and my journalism background and this belief I had that uh, money is just a great window to talk about everything. It's mm-hmm. just a great lens to talk about relationships, talk about sex, talk about family, addiction, whatever, whatever you want. And that was this idea I had. And, uh, and that's how Spent was born. And I was very lucky that Capital, the guys at Capital, um, gave me a little bit of money to kick it off. Okay. So just before we jump to that, so Capital, yeah. can you just explain exactly what that is? Sure. Uh, so capital is it's still around. It's still doing great. Uh, capital is a micro investing app. At first, it was a savings app that promoted automating automated savings, um, kind of based on your habits. It was a really neat app. They're they're they're, they're Swedish. Uh, they're based out of Stockholm. They have more of a behavioral finance element. Um, mm. I really loved working with them. They were great. Um, and then I ended up um, having to put the podcast on on hold, and I went to work for a competitor. Um, had an opportunity there called Stash, and I and I worked for them for two years as an editorial uh, editor. Sorry, as a senior editor and then an editorial director. Uh, so I ended up in this world of uh, of tech, of fintech. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you're you were doing that, but you still had the comedy going, and that's when it yeah. occurred to you, I'm going to have a podcast that you call it Spent. Yeah. So what's the like? What what is the 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 tagline for for that? Like, what summarizes what what is covered in Spent? So initially it was the, uh, it was the podcast for the financially challenged. So mm-hmm. it was people who, it was more of a storytelling podcast where people could tell stories of their financial mistakes 
and what they learned from them. And the reason why I had a lot of comedians on um, was because comedians have no filter. They tell the best stories and they're not afraid to really say what happened and what they learned. And I think that audiences really like that. Um, because they're not afraid to say they maxed out their credit cards. They're not afraid to say that they owe um, $5,000 in medical bills um, or that they haven't paid their taxes in years, you know, because they are, that's what they do for a living. And I found talking to them, even about serious stuff, um, because a lot of comedians, not all of them are very in touch with them. their, you know, with their, their fears and their addictions and whatnot. So I found them to be really open-minded and wonderful to talk to. So, um, about their, about, and they're a little bit fatalistic in some ways in a way, but within a funny way, I have this uh, theory that if you can laugh at it, you can kind of cope with it. It's like the first step of sure. the stuff. So, um, can, can I ask you just on that? Um, if we take a little tangent there. So, I mean, I like when Robin Williams, you know, he killed himself and then people were saying, you know, that it's not unusual. In fact, it might be that a lot of people go into comedy, you know, if you just think about it, like somebody who grows up depressed and I don't know Robin Williams background, but just the general pattern, like you use humor to cope with things. And so, yeah, like if you got issues, you know, you use you. And so then once you had developed that skill and if you become really good at it, well, yeah, why not market that? And that's also the way you cheer yourself up as you go, you know, make a room full of people burst into laughter. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to do it. So, I mean, is do you, does that bring true to you? Yes, I definitely have uh, a, a lot of the comics definitely have a dark side for sure. I don't think I would trust a comedian who didn't. Um, right. I don't know what that kind of person, even if they tell great jokes and 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 they're they have um, there's a, some comics that tell very lighthearted stuff, but I even they have a pretty dark side for sure. Um, I think that that's true. I believe that's be true for ninety five percent of people. Um, I for sure do. Um, I think that's that's definitely true of. True for me. I mean, you know, my whole life, I've used comedy, you know, jokes as, as a defense mechanism my whole life um, mm-hmm. to a point where you start to realize that you're sort of deflecting. You know, sometimes you have to just stop joking and accept what's what's happening. Um, but that's definitely true. Well, there's a lot of like people who were well, class clowns, a lot of people right. who weren't so great in school and, you know, they were kind of get you know. There's definitely a lot of that is true. There's um. I I wouldn't. I know very few people that went to Ivy League schools. I went to a good school, but went to um. I don't know. I don't. No one. Everyone's very mistrusting of like a lawyer by day, you know, comedian by night. Although some lawyers are very funny. You never know who's going to be funny, which I always like too. I saw the bill and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" No, okay. <laughs> people, you never know who's going to be funny, and that's the most unexpected part of comedy too. Is you think that someone who does mics five times a day and they're going to be so funny, but they're not. And sometimes like some, some, like a lawyer or a dentist might come in and they could just, they'll just kill because they just, people are just naturally funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that. I also think journalists, some journalists are a lot funnier than comedians. They just, uh, they just have such low self-esteem. They don't, they don't think that they can do it. Well, I've noticed like, for example, especially like the, the comedians on Twitter, you know, like they have their, like no one's talking about how great their dating life is. Like that just, that no. would not work. You know what I mean? It's right. always, yeah. Not funny. I mean, bragging, first of all, bragging is, is, uh, you know, it's very funny. Like, I think I realized, like, I didn't love performing. I liked having performed, you know, I'm not a natural performer. Um, I, I have trouble promoting myself, you know, but I also think a lot of comedians kind of humble brag, you know, there's a fine line between wanting to promote, you know, yourself and, you know, and, and because kind of sometimes I see women on, on, on Twitter constantly dogging themselves like no one wants to date me, I'm broke. And and sometimes I wish there was like 
it might be true, you know, but sometimes I wish that there was a, a better way to talk about yourself where than putting yourself down, but I can't tell anyone how to. Well, do I'm it. glad. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you, you, you know, went I here anymore. I used to do that. Cause I was thinking that too, but I didn't want to like take it in that direction. But yeah, I was wondering, Yeah, I don't cause do I that. thought that too. Like it is funny. Cause I used to do that in high school. Like, like I realized, Oh, a real low pressure. Like you're not going to offend people if you're making fun of yourself. Yeah. So like, Oh, this is the thing that I can say it's real safe. But then, you know, the point was like, I started believing the stuff I was saying, you know what I mean? Or yeah. you exaggerate things. For and sure. then after a while, it was like, oh, I'm going to go ask her out. And then when she shoots me down, think of the joke I'll be able to say on the, you know, yeah, the way home. You know what I mean? It's sure. like, well, that's not a good way to go into it. <laughs> I mean, there's certain things like I, I feel, you know, in terms of honesty, like I am, you know, I talk, you know, I'm, I do have, like, I talk about, I have trouble sleeping. I do have, you know, I, I'm very fond of my cat, you know? Um, have you tried listening to my podcast? That should just... Knock you right. See, self-deprecating. Actually, I take that back. My podcast is awesome. Go ahead. Well, I, I, uh, but I, I used to really, I used to be a lot meaner to myself. I've kind of, um, that's also a good part of growing up is, you know, I don't, I, you know, you have to look at the world around you and, and am I, am I truly that bad? Am I really? <laughs> um, and writing this book, you know, really has, I have to tell you, it really, it did help. But I just sort of realized that I just have to put out, it sounds very dippy and I'm very anti new age, very anti hippie, spiritual goop language. But at the same time, if you want people to, you know, pick up what you're laying down, you really, you know, you should put some put some positive stuff out there. And I am proud of myself. I've accomplished a lot, you know, and sometimes I don't feel that way. And sometimes I, I feel like no one feels that way every day. So I, I try to give myself a little bit of credit, which is the, which is the best I can do. Right. I, I don't want to, I'm happy to say I'm having a bad day or, you know, not, I'm not perfect, you know, but, um, but I don't want to do that anymore. I don't think it's, it makes, it makes people I want people to acknowledge that I worked hard and that I'm a good person. And I want, and, and I don't think so. I want to make people feel better. I like working. I like talking to people. I like lifting people up. It just makes me feel good. And nobody wants a downer to lift other people, you know? So there's right. a fine line between being like a realist and saying, I know things are terrible, but like, we'll get through it together versus like, everything's going to be amazing. And like hashtag gratitude. Like I'll never be able to talk <laughs> like that. Right. Yeah. Um, on this, because again, this is, I got you here. I want to, it seems like, for example, like Rodney Dangerfield, just to pick the most obvious one, I don't worry that he's actually, in, you know, depressed or that if he goes and negotiates, you know, with a director about, well, how much are you going to pay me for this camera you want me to do, that they're going to think, well, you're not really valuable. He's going to be, no, I'm Rodney Dangerfield. What are you talking about? So it seems like there is a way that you can kind of keep it distinct, like the shtick from your own, uh, you know, self-image or whatever. I don't know. All these people have management because they can't, mm -hmm. they can't advocate for themselves. You know, most comedians that, you know, especially men, they, they just vacillate between like ego and insecurity and, 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 all, and women too, you know? Um, so it's a lot of comedians and a lot of artists have no clue what they're worth. Cause they can say like, I'm worth a million dollars. I'll do it for nothing. Like they have no, right. you know, and they're, and, and in comedy and in, you know, a lot of other arts, there's no set rate, you know? And you have to you have to deal with people saying that's too much, and you have to you have to, you have to mm. walk away or say I'll do it for less. And if you do it for less, then you have to you know. So it's comedy is brutal. Can you give us an idea? Because you're you got this unique intersection where you know financial stuff, but also yeah. you were in the trenches, you know, in in New York City. Yeah. Like, how many people are doing comedy the way there are waitresses trying to get into show business in California versus like no, I pay my bills. 
because I tell jokes for a living. You know oh, what I mean? Almost nobody. Very okay. few people. Um, it takes years to be able to tell jokes full time. Um, and a lot of comedians will work part time. It takes a very long let, can time. I, let me ask it this way. Yeah. Anybody who is paying the bills from doing comedy is that somebody that we all would have heard the name of, or there's, is there like a whole level of people that like, like in other words, there's professional golfers that I probably don't know their name. They're not world famous, but oh yeah, they're, that's what they do. You see what I mean? Like, is, yeah. is that true in comedy or it's like, no, it's so rare you, that you, you can pay the bills. stand up or people who write also? It's a good distinction. Yeah. So go ahead and just that general topic. So yeah, if you want to say, some, oh yeah, writers. I mean, you know, there's some, yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of comedians, you know, I think Josh Gondelman is a great comment. If you follow him on Twitter, he's a sweetheart. Um, he does comedy. He wrote a book. He also works on Jesus and Marrow. So a lot of comedians will write for a show and then also do stand up. That's a really great, that's a way of kind of um, being able to supplement your money on the road, you know, but also be funny for a living. Um, do do yeah. you know how that works? Like, so, and again, I don't mean to put you on this, but like for whatever, Leno or Cohen or something, like how many, do you know how many writers they carry and how does that work? Do you have any I feel for that? Have, okay. I, I know that you have to, it, it's tough. You know, you have to submit a packet. You need to have some representation. Um, I once filled out a packet. Um, I don't watch a lot of late night, mm-hmm. um, but it was interesting. I did a packet and I, I thought I was pretty good at the, the monologue jokes because I used to work at the New York Daily News and I've worked in news, so I'm pretty mm-hmm. good at setups and all that stuff. But I don't know very much about sketch comedy. Um, I, I wasn't really a late night person. Um, I used to watch Conan in college. I'm still a Conan fan. Uh, but um, it wasn't really for, you know, you can't write for stuff that you're not passionate about. And uh, I was just, uh, it, it wasn't for me. But I, you do a packet. They send you what you want. You have to kind of write to a certain template. And then if they like you, they maybe take you on. So I don't know if people... Um, if it's first season, they renew your contract. That's usually how it works for most writing for shows that you, you do something spec. Um, it's a lot more, it's more unpaid labor, but, uh, but yeah. And it also helps if you know someone, uh, there was someone on Twitter who I don't want to say who, who was very sweet and supportive and said, I should submit a packet for the Larry Wilmore show. And the next day it was canceled. <laughs> um, but, um, but I would like that. I think that it's just sitting in a room with other funny people is, is, is sort of like my, my dream, you know, I don't need to perform it. Um, they're, you're, you're better off being a better performer and a meh writer than right. being a, a great writer and a meh performer. When it comes to stand-up, people want to be entertained. And I think I, I had good jokes. I had pretty good jokes. I'm a good writer. But I think on stage, I, I was, I was okay. I was just, I was, a, I was, a, I was, I was okay. Can you uh, comment? I, I've asked the other stand-ups uh, about this topic too. The issue of like joke plagiarism. Yeah. Can you, it's just like, what are, what are, you know, like, is there standard etiquette among comedians? And some of them are like, oh yeah, that guy, he's, you know, he totally ripped it. Or is it more like, well, yeah, we're always borrowing material. You can't say, no, no, no. just whatever you want to say on that. I just, I'm fascinated by that idea. So I wrote a piece for, I don't know if you saw it for, um, for the Atlantic, for, um, courts about the economics of jokes. And this is one of the things that I talked about was the idea of, um, of what is the value of a joke? You know, this would have been a piece if I were a better interviewer, I would have already <laughs> Knowing you wrote that and read it thoroughly. Yeah, it's so it was a really fun piece to write. I interviewed some really big comics, um, and I interviewed. Um, and one thing we talked about, um, like Andy Kindler and George Wallace, and and uh, Pardon and Cheryl. I just it was a really fun piece to write. And in the end, um, plagiarism is really gross. It's really mm. bad. There's sometimes it's parallel thinking for sure. I mean, if you 
you know, there's something that comes into the zeitgeist, you know, Donald Trump, you know, his skin is a little bit orange, you know, a lot of people are going to see that, you know, right. or, you know, Mike Pence, he sure is religious, you know, Hillary Clinton, she sure, <laughs> you know, there's certain things like she sure has a bit of a sketchy background, you know, like it's, you know, so there's certain things that you just sort of can't help, but there's like something that's really unique that you came up with and you really can tell that they may have seen you doing it or the people who steal off Twitter. That's so low. Um, I'm a very, I try to be a pretty ethical person. So to me, that's like the worst to, you know, but I do know I once tweeted something about, I that I think it was parallel thinking that I thought Mike Pence looked like an older version, looked like Eminem, older Eminem. And, and then someone else said the same thing. And the people, some people said like, that's, you ripped off Lindsay's joke. And I was like, that's so amazing. A, that someone paid attention to my joke, you know, and also, and if they did rip it off, that's, it's, but I'm not a famous person. I know that um, you shouldn't, because first of all, it, it, it decreases the value of that person's joke and that person's hard work. It's, it's people will accept a certain level of parallel thinking, but if you really are knocking off the way somebody talks, the order in which you do certain comedy, you know, the way people can tell and people get really mad, but there's nothing they can do. There's no copyright on a shtick. Right. You just have to be kind of an ethical person and you have to be able to confront that person and say, hey, you're doing something really similar to me. Can we talk about it? And if the person and to me, if the person isn't, then they'll be like, oh, my God, that's so crazy. What can we do? Can we tell it differently? You know, because um, but most people will get really defensive. And oh, see, this is interesting. That's an angle I had never heard because I was thinking, isn't the damage done? But you're saying, well, no, because if somebody like comedians and this is, I think, something we forget. Because we see somebody's comedy special and assume, oh, he told all those jokes one time for HBO and then never said oh, them again. Yeah. And obviously that's not the case. If you're working, yeah. you're telling, you know, you're doing different routines for different nights. Oh, totally. So yeah, if you see somebody that you think stole your joke, you could actually nip it in the bud and kind of talk and say, can you maybe take it in a different direction or whatever? So they're distinct. Okay. That's a very civilized thing to do. And a lot of comedians aren't so civilized. But but oh my God, yeah, I saw a, um, an acquaintance of mine do his five minutes on... It's either Colbert or Conan, and it was so exciting to see that five minutes because I'd seen it, various uh, permutations of it, mm-hmm. years. And to watch it culminate in those five minutes and how he refined it and how he got his like 20 minutes down to five was so exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm such an enthusiast, I, you know, so I was so excited. Now, for me, this is one of the most interesting things. Can, is there anything you can say? Because I, I think a lot of people don't understand that. Like they just assume, oh, some people are just, you know, funny from birth and oh, no. they get up and, I, and they don't really like there was honing going on. And the, what you see on the TV, spe- the Netflix special, they put like they might have been working on that for a year or something. So how? Years. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how, how does that like, for the, I don't know if you want to use that one as an example or just in general, like have you seen you know, are there any anecdotes or anything like that of just, you know, oh, someone tried this and they realized, oh, if I change, you know, this part of the joke, then it, it works better. It's just luck. I mean, to, my the people I know that have made it on have a Comedy Central half hour, get a spot on Conan, get a spot. It's, you, you have to be doing it for, I mean, there's some people have a lucky break and they might get within like two or three years, but it takes forever because you have to, most of the people I know that got their spots on on late night um, or comment comments to half hour had to be at least seven five to seven years of of practicing, maybe being mm-hmm. on the road, maybe opening, getting work. It's it's it takes forever. It is it's like it's like acting. It's such a skill. It's performance. It's writing. It's 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 everything. It's having a t- a little bit of business acumen, which most people don't have. Um, it is 
a hundred percent the heart of one of the hardest arts out there without a doubt. Cause you're just going up there just on your own with no help. You write, I mean, you might have a friend maybe who helps you write something, but it's you up there alone. And if you're not charming and a great performer who doesn't know how to deliver the joke, and then sometimes the jokes you have do really well. And then one night they just bomb. So you have to have confidence that you have to do this law of math. If people laugh yeah. 80% of the time at this joke, do I keep it? Um, yeah, when I had Rob Bernstein on, that was something we were talking about where he was mentioning on the the same material. You know, so it's not just a matter of oh, you got to make the joke funny or something. But no, some nights it kills, oh. and on other nights it does, and it's weird. It's you know, really who, weird. Who can say? I was, I mean, and again, I was, I was kind of a bar, a bar show comic. I didn't really do clubs. I didn't. You have, you have to, um, you have to try out for clubs. And I wasn't really, um, I wasn't the, the. I knew I wanted to go into a writer path, so I just mm. sort of did the stand up. Just. I wasn't, I wasn't moving in that direction, but, um, wait, what was I saying? Sorry. It bombs in some places and other nights oh, yeah. it does well. So I did a show at, a at this place called the Creek in the cave, which is in a very, in, which is in Queens. It's, um, it's a very, it's a very, it's a performance space. A lot of good comics have come out of there. Um, I did a show, I did eight minutes that no one laughed, not one laugh. And usually when you get off set, even if you can, can I ask, it was like, because they're, they're talking and kind of, they weren't really paying attention or they were looking at you intently and just stony faced looking at me intently, kind of drunk, looking at their phones. And I've never gotten no laughs before. I'm like very pleasant on stage. My jokes uh -huh. pretty mellow. And usually when you, well, even if a person does sort of crummy, you know, when you get off stage, the comics will be like, you know, good job or, you know, whatever, but no one would even look at me. It was so grim. Oh, I remember geez. thinking to myself and someone was in the audience, someone had hired a photographer to take pictures of that show. Um, in the photos, I look like I'm having the show of my life. <laughs> I look like I'm doing a Ted talk on amazing comedy. Um, but I remember I like walked out the door and I was like, maybe I should just like keep walking like into traffic. Like it was just such an extraordinary experience it's like time slows down and just sort of loops back on itself. But in the end it was such, but then I did another show that night and I, it did fine. The same material did. Okay. So literally the same night. Yeah. So you, I, I, the I, same I, material totally bombed in one venue and you had to yeah. walk across town well, and go do it somewhere else. It depends. Like I'm not 23. I don't do Tinder jokes. I don't do, I, my jokes weren't very, I had like, they, they weren't too explicit. Like I'm, I'm like a woman. I was a woman in her thirties. People in the audience, if they're like, drunk kids in their early twenties are just not going to get me. And that's okay. Um, but I remember you're like, what's the deal with these mortgage payments? Right. Exactly. <laughs> I had, I had some LinkedIn jokes that, that do pretty well with people over 35. Like those two people love LinkedIn jokes. Everyone detests LinkedIn. Um, but, but I don't know, but like that bomb was so profound that it kind of changed my life because if you can come back from that, like you can kind of come back from well, I'm anything. <laughs> kind of amazed that you did it that night. Like I, you know what I mean? No like that's, that's amazing. No one cares. That's the best advice anyone ever yeah. gave me. My friend, my friend said to me, I once was, I went to, um, when I was first getting started, I was at an open mic and I bombed everyone, you know, and I went, I saw, I bumped into a friend and I was, I wasn't crying, but I was feeling, I said like, what am I doing? I'm in my mid thirties. Everyone here is in their early twenties. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm in this, on the Lower East Side doing comedy, like my, my husband's at home. Like, what, what am I doing? And my friend, and, and I just bombed, like I'm such a loser or whatever. And he said to me, and this guy is still my friend. He said, nobody cares. Now nobody cares about you and your feelings, but like you bombing up there, no one's paying attention to you. Just keep right. moving. 
and it was, and that sound, it was like the most caring, it seems uncaring, but it just sort of shows like, you know, it doesn't, the things that you think are so awful that everyone's going to make fun of, like, be like, they're all going to laugh at you, like from Carrie. Yeah. It just, you just have and to, you're keep, like, no, that's the problem. They're not. No one's yes. going to remember. You just have to keep going. Like you're not famous. Yeah. No one cares. I've seen a lot of really great comics bomb too. And that's been very inspiring. Well, th- yeah, this is, yeah, that's something that like Dave Smith and other comedians I had on was mentioning that, that that's partly what you can see. Oh. is somebody that you know, like is nationally known or whatever, world famous. Oh, yeah. And they get up and if they do poor, like how do they deal with it? And they just have the confidence. No, they just keep, no, no, they know the next jokes is going to get them. The next joke's fine. You know, or they they just just, keep, or I, in my mind, they're just refining it. They're like, okay, like that one needs work. That one needs work. Or mm-hmm. that one's going to go on the cutting room floor. Like you just sort of see like that a, a joke is sort of part of their process, you know, like that every, it's like, you know, it's just refining something. Nothing right. just sounds, you know, to get like someone like Chris Rock to, to me, like, I mean, his shows are like, they're true performances. And to get like, mm. you know, the, the, the choreography and to get the jokes and to get them to land. I mean, that's, that's, it's performance art in so many ways. And, and I'm sure that when he first starts writing out jokes, you know, and he might have some, I mean, a lot of big comedians have, have like a, a team of writers that help them out, um, which is, which I would love to do. I'd love to write for somebody, but it's just, it's just, a, it takes a really long time. And, you know, it's very fun. The comedian, uh, George Wallace, who's one of my favorites, mm. um, uh, he once said that if you want to see, you can see him for cheap in Vegas, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you're going to get him looking at note cards. You're going to get him throwing the note cards on the floor. Um, and that's what you get for seeing him for five bucks is that you get the, you get, you get the, the, uh, right. the pre-edit, which is exciting to me and people, and cause he wants to know what will hit and what yeah. will hit. Well, that, and, then, and the weekend goes the weekend. That's when people pay big right. money and they, they need a, a real show. Yeah. I've told this story before, but on that point, I went and saw George Carlin live once I was teaching in Southern Michigan and I went up, I think it was like university of Michigan or something. And, uh, and he gets, goes out there and it's all, you know, college kids drunk and whatever. And he actually read like a, you know, he, he went through like a, one of his long rants or something and he had it written out and he just read it to us. And I was like astonished and it was clear, you know, he didn't care about, what we, our feedback, but then later he had an HBO special where he had had that all memorized. Yeah. So, you know, we, we caught him early and I was like, Oh, and I, it, it actually made me appreciate him more to like, it made him more human, like to realize, Oh, that's how he gets to, yeah. cause in other words, if you were just born and just naturally you could memorize that would just be, well, you're, you're Superman, you know, like you're from Krypton. That's why you're like that. But no, it's like, no, he really worked hard at that. It's it took him a year. Writing and performance. Mm-hmm. And even the most like offhand people who tell jokes, like it's nothing. It's just, it's so much work and it's, it's just, and it's a battle and, and, you know, anyway, but that, that's, that's why I liked, cause in the end I, I, I do think I'm a better writer and a better producer of ideas and I am a performer. Um, even though I would love to go on the road with doing some more funny money stuff, I have some ideas of ways to, to keep that going. I think people do like talking about, um, I think it's a good topic. People are, people want to talk about money. Um, this book I wrote bow down. It's, it's more of a, work and relationship books where book where I interviewed dominatrixes to tell people um, how to be more confident in their bedroom boardroom lives. But in the end, it's all the same. People um, want to laugh and think about ways that they can feel more confident and more powerful. And that all has to, and to me, it all goes, a lot of it goes back to money and mm-hmm. also people who have sec, a lack of sex education and financial illiteracy um, I don't know. Both, both of those things lead to bad decision-making, you know, poorly informed decisions. Uh, and I think that, that we don't learn enough of that in school. Uh, we don't get good sex ed and we, um, and we don't learn how to 
deal with our money. So, and I think both of those things can lead for challenging adulthoods. So let me uh, cover these, the the clips you sent. And then, yeah, the the last segment here, I want to talk about your, your, your book. So you, as I always ask the stand-up comedians who are going to be on the show, I asked Lindsay to prepare. Um, she's got two clips for us here. And so the first is Susie Esmond. Now, should we just play the clip first and then have you respond or do you want to set it up for How do you want to do it? I, I'll just set it up real quick. You know, Susie, okay. a lot of people know Susie Esmond um, as, um, as the mom on Broad City. She was on Curve Your Enthusiasm. To me, the best part of Curve Your Enthusiasm. Uh, but I knew of her years ago when I was uh, a little kid up late watching stand-up comedy. And I always paid attention to the, to the female stand-up comics because I was, I was obsessed with being funny. And she was the first one. Uh, she was a big, uh, she was a big hit for me as a kid. And, uh, and I can just play the clip. Okay. And so we'll go ahead and roll it. So he left me cause he told me, he said I was a Jap. I don't mean a Japanese person. I mean a princess, Jewish American princess. You think I'm a princess? No, I'm not a princess. I'm a queen. You want me so badly right now, don't you? Yeah. It's frightening. What's your name? Pete. Pete. I, my ex-boyfriend's name is Pete. Oh, not hit the one. The, another one. Is that a small world? My mother would do 20. My mother lives for coincidence. She would do 20 minutes on this. His name is Pete. You used to go out with a Pete. Oh, my God. Uh, Is that something? Oh, my God. I saw her a couple of weeks ago. She pulls me over. She says, I have a funny story for you. You could use this in your act. (laughs) Your father and I were on the cruise. So um, there's a woman sitting at our table, delightful woman. So I said to her, that's a lovely sweater. And it was, a lot of detailed work. So she said, thank you. I said, you're welcome. She said, I got it at a shop where they do hand knitting. I said, oh really, where might a shop like that be perchance? She said, Cedarhurst. I said, Cedarhurst, go on. She said, yes. I said, you know, I have a friend in Cedarhurst. She said, really? What's in it? I'm like, Ma, what's the point of the story already? You know? It turns out she's Lester Levine's mother's cousin. Oh, my God. Is that a small world? We lived. We lived. Funny. Ah, ah, ah. You could use that in your act, right? So I'm using it. So, Pete, do women confuse you? No. No? That's because you're so dumb. You have no idea how confusing we are. No, come on, guys. Men are simple and women are complex. It's a fact. We love you guys, but we love you in a patronizing way. Like kind of how you love the village idiot. You know what I mean? You don't know what to do anymore. You're so confused. My ex-boyfriend used to try to like, he was like an animal, but then he tried to be sensitive. Like in bed, he'd say to me stuff like, tell me what you want, you know. I want a milkshake. What do you think I want? I'm in bed with you. What do you think I want? Okay. Yeah, great. I, and I remember her too, because I used to watch like, was it VH1 that had stand-up stand-up or something? Or, yeah. And, and that was her HBO, clips. Were always, HBO had a lot of real fun comedy in the in mm-hmm. mid-90s and early But 90s. there was there was a channel, maybe it was even Comedy Central too, but they, like it would be a half an hour of just clips, like, you know, two minute clips of various comedians, just a compilation. But it was it was good stuff. Anyway, so what what specifically spoke to you about that particular clip that you selected? 
so, you know, when you're younger and you're, you know, I was a kid and kind of a, you know, an awkward kid, um, who secretly wanted to be funny, but had trouble socially. Um, I was from Long Island. I'm Jewish. Uh, and seeing, you know, you, it's very hard for you to see yourself, you know, see a mentor or something, uh, on the big screen, you know, and, um, or on, on your TV, you know, and I know for some people, you know, they might, you know, some Jewish girls may have, uh, really liked, uh, Rhoda or, you know, everyone or like the, the people have, everyone's looking to find themselves on TV and relate to them. And as a kid, I saw her on, on stage, you know, this like Jewish woman with that accent. And that was what people, my mother's friends and the people I thought were kind of glamorous, you know, growing up, you know, with this, you know, my mom has that kind of an accent and it felt like that's something that I could be. And the stuff she made fun of sounded like the people I know, uh, she would joke about, about her family and how annoying people are. And at the end, like you just think the stuff, she thought things were annoying that I thought were annoying, but she was an adult and I was a little kid and I related to her. Um, I never related to other kids on TV. I related to adults, you know, mm -hmm. and I found her relationship issues. Um, even as like an 11 year old, I'm like, that makes so much sense to me. And I just like wanted to be like that kind of person, someone who's witty. And even though she didn't really, in her act, she wasn't really getting what she wanted. And she was kind of cynical, you know, like most comedians aren't happy. Everything is great. But I just, I just immediately honed in on this, this Jewish, I always loved Jewish comedians. I'm Jewish, but to see a woman do it was like, oh, maybe I can do that. Right. I love, you know, when, when I have a drink, I talk like that. It's very easy for me to go into that, you know, like, what are you talking about? Oh, like, what are you kidding me? Like, that's very, if I have a drink, that, that all comes out. That's all very much a part of me. Right. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just ask the cliched question that, yeah, so it's like growing up, like people are like, oh, it's, I love Lucy and that's about it. Right. And like, and then all of a sudden it does seem like there was an explosion of, of female comics. Like now that's not even a novelty anymore where I do yeah. kind of remember there was a period where, you know, that was, that was sort of a, you know, a rare thing. Like, Oh, she's, she's the the woman on Saturday night live or you get, I'm, yeah. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but yeah, that that's now more main uh, stream. W were there any other like, oh, yeah. like influences in terms of like it's ones you, you know, in particular? Paula Poundstone, huge. You know, like, there were a lot. There was in the mid '90s. There were a lot of comics out there, and there were some women. I liked Rita Rudner. I liked Paula Poundstone. I liked Wanda Sykes. I liked. I used to watch Deaf Comedy Jam. Whenever there was a woman on, I used to get so excited. Um, I used to watch um, Rosie O'Donnell was really funny. Roseanne Barr was mm. hilarious. Um, you know, Ellen used to be really funny too. I know people think of Ellen, but I remember she was great. She's a big influence for a lot of comedians that came out of New Orleans, you know. Um, who else? Yeah, there were like tons of like great female comics, such as a lot of them. Oh gosh, uh, Liz Winstead. There was a show called um, like Women of the Night or something ludicrous mm -hmm. um, on HBO. And all those women were incredible. A lot of them, one of them went on to work for The Daily Show. One of them went on to write for Seinfeld. I loved Carol Leifer. I loved Leigh Boozler. Like all the, any one I saw that was a woman that was funny, I, I glommed on. Um, and and I just loved all the female characters um, for sure. Okay, yeah. great. The second clip you sent was from Doug Stanhope. Is there anything you need to say to set this one up? Or Yes. Um, so, so that is a very special uh that's from beer hall putsch which is a show he did in portland i believe uh it's a great special it is insane and um well why don't you play it first and i'll tell you why it's so special to me okay so let's take a listen folks you occupy your filthy portland hippie selves 
because you hate the 1%. And you hate the banks because of their predatory lending practices against the people and enslave them in a lifetime of debt. What'd you do about it? You stunk up a park for almost a year. I occupy far more efficiently. Maybe you should look to me for leadership. I hate the banks as well as we all do. How did I f them? I spent three hours jacking up mother's Chase Bank Visa card after she's dead up to its $10,000 limit, buying dumb sh that no one needs and sticking them with the bill because she had no estate except for that blind last cat. If you want to repo that, have at it. That actually caused damage to the bank. Not sitting around with a dog with a kerchief and a cardboard sign. Slapping on drums in a drum circle. The fucking Occupy movement was such a letdown because you seemed like me, angry and we're going to take to the streets and holy shit, around the globe, people are this. We're gonna do something. And what did you do? You fucked up a park. All you fucked up in a year is some guy's day who wanted to throw a frisbee for his dog, but you, he couldn't because you're all camped out there. You hate the banks? Don't fuck up the park. Fuck up the bank. Who's in charge of this project? Next time, me. We don't really have leadership. You needed some. You have 500 angry people in a park. Go break them up into squads of 20. You can fuck up every branch of Bank of America in a 50 mile radius. Go there. And not as anarchists either, throwing bricks through the windows. What are you, a fucking teenager? Have some ingenuity. You line up as customers at eight o'clock in the morning. They only have two desks to do actual commerce other than cashing checks and shit. You clog up those two desks as bogus customers. Sit down, cross your legs, apply for frivolous loans all day long. That's a lot of paperwork for every frivolous. Yes, I need a billion dollars for an ant farm. Sharpen some pencils, that's a big stack of paperwork. I'd love some coffee. You comb your dreadlocks over to one side, put on your $3 Salvation Army suit, and you clog up all their time. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it's not just that it's about money, which is interesting to me. It was, um, I have a personal dislike for people who play to the crowd. It's very, um, I once saw a comedian who I will not say who it was because uh, I want to get on his radio show. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he was, he's sort of an NPR comic where he just is telling the crowd what they want to hear, like making anti-Trump jokes to a New York City room, um, unless they're great jokes, is like, it's just too easy. Like, why I, I don't mean to be the an idiot, but... When you say NPR, com, that's a phrase you invented. You don't literally mean... Yeah, like, okay, it's, just, yeah. it's just telling people what they want to hear. It's right. like preaching to the choir. It's mm -hmm. And as a comedian, I just I think that you should be a little more challenging. I think you should, I think that the best comedians make people a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable. I don't right. think like, you know, they should make people be like, like, oh, oh, shoot. Like, or like, right. huh, you know, like, damn. Like, they should, you know, that's the best comedy when everyone says when people when when a room of people are just like shake their heads and they're laughing like that's crazy but they're laughing because they're thinking and i just think mm -hmm. that's really brave and i think for duck stanhope 
um, to go to Portland and to make fun of Occupy Wall Street and all the things, which I, I agree with him. And I have friends that worked on the Occupy movement, how it was such a blown opportunity in so many ways. And I worked downtown at the New York Daily News near Zuccotti Park. And it was it was a moment. And then I'd walk past and I'd see people, I'd see the drum circles and I'd be like, what is happening here? Like right. and the people, the people who worked on wall street would just walk by and shake their heads and be like, you know, they feel like they just didn't understand. Like, like no one was, nothing really had much of an effect. And, um, but to go to Portland and do that is that's balls. And that's really mm-hmm. brave. And it was very challenging. And I really admired him for doing it. And the audience laughs, but there's some uncomfortable people in the audience and he just goes for it. And I, I think that if you can do something like that, then you are, then that's, that's the mark of a real comedian is to go to a place where people are, might boo you, but you just, you're just confident that you're right. And these jokes are great and they're on point. Those jokes are on point and they're great. Funny. Can I ask you, so as you probably can guess, a lot of libertarians know him because you know, he, he advances their political views or, you know, like he, I think he even like wears a libertarian shirt Uh, occasionally. So, and along the spirit of like, don't be afraid of offending my audience. That's what they need to know. I'm just curious, like how, how famous is he like in the grand, you know, the grand ecosystem of comedy and do other people think of him as a libertarian guy or is it just like, they might not even know that. Like, no, it's just Doug Stan. What are you talking about? I didn't know that, that he was libertarian. Oh, okay, great. That That's, that's yeah. interesting. No, right. I didn't know that. Um, I'm not surprised, you know, he lives, you mm-hmm. know, but, um, I mean, I know he's, he's a, he's an atheist, right? He gets a, didn't he once pay someone's bills who said on TV after a hurricane that she was an atheist and all, everyone on the news was like, got mad at her because she, anyway, um, I didn't know that he was, I don't really pay attention to people's political views. Um, the less I know, the better, (laughs) uh, but no, I didn't know that, that he was. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. So that, that tells me that he's not just playing to our, because he is big in our circles. Like, so if there's a libertarian event that wants to get a comedian, like he would norm, you know I mean? As as long as the crowd can handle F-bombs and stuff, he would be an obvious Oh, that's funny. Oh, can we get him? Yeah. All right. So oh, that's, that's funny. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. I just think of him as just a great. I mean, the the the, the thing he does about his mother um, is one of the best pieces of performance art I've ever seen about his mother um, in the euthanasia with his mother is a hundred percent one of the best pieces of comedy I've ever seen. Um, it's funny. It's emotional. It's got great punchlines. This. I'm going to be honest with you, Lindsay. I thought you picked him to send to me as one of your two choices because you thought, oh, I'll do a libertarian thing for Bob's no, show. No, I just, That's really interesting. Okay. I just love, no, I didn't know that. I just love that it, it had a money angle to it. Mm-hmm. But I just remember watching it and being like, that is so impressive. Like to go to Portland and to, right. to tear down Occupy, that's so funny yeah. um, and bold. And so yeah. that's one of the reasons why I, I really like that. Well, speaking of people being bold... Tell us about about your book. Yeah. First of all, sure. the, the name of it and everything, and so that people know how to order it. Yeah. And let sure. me preface this: I I told you it's a PG thirteen podcast at most. Yeah. So we no, have no, to no. be a little There's bit. No, it's uh, it's actually a very nice book, and uh, um, I should have a, the book to hold up, but I uh, I don't. Uh, it's um, it's. Called- I'll I'll see if we can superimpose the image like oh, on the video. Oh, yeah, it's a great cover. It's a great cover. They did a beautiful job. Um, it's called. Uh, the book is called Bow Down, Lessons from Dominatrixes on How to Get Everything You Want. And I interviewed dominatrixes um, who are 
a lot of people, there are women who, female identified people who will explore fantasies and do all sorts of things. Um, and it's BDSM, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how much to get into, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kinky stuff, you know, and I've always been fascinated by dominatrixes in their world and the idea of alpha women, you know, right. and, uh, I had the opportunity, uh, to, to write a book. And initially I was going to write just a plain old personal finance book, but I just couldn't really get inspired. And I thought to myself, maybe I could just interview some dominatrixes and they could, you know, tell me how to ask for a raise and how to, you know, I thought it was going to be this very kind of, um, kind of funny kind of quippy book. Um, mm-hmm. but then when I met them, I was, I had a very, they ended up being, um, really incredibly kind and gentle. And, and can I, I ask, so did you, like you figured there are conferences and you just went there or like you contacted famous ones and said, can I come to your office or get, go to a coffee shop and interview you? It was like, all of that. They, it was all okay. of that. Um, I went, um, I reached out to this one dominatrix who, um, is very well known in the community. Her name is Simone Justice and she, who she's become a true friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, and I reached out to her and she said, I don't really like talking to the media. I haven't had great experiences. Um, and I, I threw myself at her mercy and I said, you don't have to talk to me. That's okay. But I just want to tell you what my book is about. And she, I convinced her that it was, um, about ph- their philosophy and heart and about, um, it wasn't exploitative. I didn't want to talk about what they did in their sessions. That wasn't really interesting right. to me. And I, I charmed her enough that she, she said, I st- I'm not sure if I want to talk to you, but um, she helped get me a press pass to DomCon, which is a dominatrix convention and kind of a kinky convention in California. And that was that was very, you know, it was incredible. I got to sit in on these workshops and meet all the women and they were so smart and so interesting and so empathetic and so different than I thought they were going to be. Um, that it ended up really sort of changing the way I, I looked at confidence and personal power. And the book ended up becoming much more of a work life, kind of a bedroom boardroom uh, mm-hmm. book. There's definitely some some ways to get to advocate yourself at work. There's, there's ways to look at yourself and how to bring out your best self. There's lots of relationship stuff. You know, I'm a, I'm a married person. I how to express what you want in the bedroom with your partner, been with your partner for a long time. And I just thought the women were just so empathetic and so interesting. And the way that they talk about kindness, honesty, and directness, um, consent and negotiation, all these things are just right. a great lens to look at life. So it was just practical applications of, of kinky thinking is how the so book who, came out. Can I ask like who at these, at these conferences or conventions, um, like you, they're like workshops and whatever. So like, are, who's the people in the, is it mostly like women who want to go and pick up some tips or is it like vendors mostly that are there or you, you know what I mean? Or like at this one, there was, it was other doms who were looking mm-hmm. to, to learn skills and from other more experienced doms. And it was a, it was really it was really, first of all, it was very exciting to see something you'd never seen before. I couldn't believe that they allowed me in the room to, there were no other reporters there. It was just me in the back. Right. Um, it was seeing something you could you'd never see anywhere else. You know, these women giving the demonstrations of skill sharing and a lot of it, a lot of it, then they did some emotional stuff too, about like anger management and mental health stuff. Cause in these conventions, these women come from all over the country. A lot of them don't see each other all the time and it can be, it's a sense of community and a sisterhood. And I I thought it was really incredible. And, you know, and, and I 
I, I, and then, so I met some women there and then I got in touch with them afterward and I had a, I just hustled. He's got to reach uh-huh. out to people with a good pitch. Luckily I was Simon and Schuster is putting out the book. So, um, that gave me some gravitas and also, um, having Simone justice, um, backing me was a big deal too. So I really owe her a lot. She gets a special thank you at the end of the book and she's fantastic. Okay. So how did that, did you pitch the, did you have like a literary agent or did you just directly? I had a very like, cool experience. I, I, uh, I, there was an imprint at Simon Schuster that was uh, getting off the ground and, and I, they were looking for new authors and I, I pitched this and it was just, it was just kismet. So nor, I do have an agent though, but uh-huh. this, I, I sort of, it was just a, a it was a combination of, of my charm and good timing. <laughs> okay, great. So but just to fill in the gap for the listeners who might be like amazing. So you did, we kind of glossed over it there in your career trick, but you, you were writing like for magazines and things, right? So you had like, you had a portfolio, like, so Simon Schuster wasn't just like, oh, she's unknown. Just no, no. cold called us. So I started like, off in women's magazines. I, I transitioned to, I worked at court TV for a little bit. That was kind of a crazy job where I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I went, I worked in breaking news for a few years, um, cbsnews.com, abcnews.com. And then I went to the New York daily news and then I made a transition from news, um, to, to tech. So, and, in the, and I freelanced along the way. So I've written for fast company. I've written for, for courts. I've written for lots of different places. Uh, so, and then the podcast spent kind of raised my profile a little bit because people liked it because it was a little different. Right. So, um, it was, and the comedy people were very interested in a person who can get up and talk about comedy and talk about money. So I, I have a nice little, I have a niche that I'm really proud of that I can t- talk about basic finance, but I can also with a lot of empathy and I can also, you know, get some laughs out of a room full sure. of uncomfortable people. So it, it's, it's pretty cool. So as far as the book, um, are there any, and you might say, nah, you really would have to read it, but is there any kind of example of something that like, you know, oh, there's, there's this one tip that's in the, this community, but you know, that actually carries over when you're, you know, in your workplace too. Like, yeah, there's a lot of it. The whole book is very practical. There's, um, there's very little in the book that, um, it's practical applications of, of kinky thinking. The book is really mostly about like just super communication also about, uh, how, so one thing I say is how you can sort of reverse, you know, when you're starting a job, you don't have any power. You know, mm-hmm. you're just, you're new. And then suddenly your boss starts to just pile other responsibilities on you. We said, well, how, what can you do? You can't just m- march into your boss's office and say, I'm not doing this because she, she's the one in control. So how can you advocate for yourself in a way that can raise your power profile a little bit? And the way I, th- and this is in the book, because I thought about this as a combination of the, the way the women talk to me and the things I knew from working startups is you have to go in. If you go in with your job description and you make a list of what you're doing now and you talk to your boss and say, how can we prioritize what I should be doing? And you kind of keep track of this over time. A lot of the doms tell me that they have their subs keep, keep a list of what they, of of diaries and all these things. And it's all really great advice because if you have the data to support what you do, you'll always have more power than somebody that comes into the room and says, I'm just overwhelmed. I feel Mm -hmm. being given too much. And there's all these ways to talk where you can come back to the table showing how how much work you're doing and how needed you are versus how overwhelmed you are. So a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in the book is just rephrasing a, a situation, not to sound like a jerk, and also right. being um taking a power role at work doesn't mean being rude 
or being irrational, you know, sorry, I would never say irrational. It doesn't mean being rude or being insensitive or cruel or abusive. People think that to be a boss or to be a boss at work means, you know, being an egomaniac or, or, you know, hurting people's feelings. And to me, that's not what a boss is at all. That's not what makes someone powerful. And I think that's another thing that we should just rethink about the idea of the alpha woman in the workplace is you have to be true to yourself and you have to have your own values. And to me, um, to be, if I was ever a boss again, um, my values would be very different than another person's values, but, but, but I would be better at it because I believe mm. in it. And, 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 and I would never be cruel. I've been, I've been abused in the workplace and right. I didn't respect them to put it, you know, I didn't stay. They lost so, Yeah. Can I add, so it's not merely for people who like, Oh, how to go ask your boss for a raise, but also if you're managing people, this is the way you can get them to to do what you want them to do in a, in a nice, efficient way. Is yeah. that kind of stuff in there? There is a little bit of that in there. Um, there's a lot more to explore in the book. The book's a little bit of a, of a sampler platter and I'm pretty <laughs> excited to see what, what, what resonates with people. I do think, uh, one of the doms, um, that woman and I have some ideas of, of how to take some of the stuff that work she does and to combine it with some of the work I do and really kind of dig into more practical applications of, of work and actual, um, like how to get what you want from your employees, how to get what you want from your boss. Uh, so much of what she does, even though she teaches other doms, people come up to her and they say, you've really helped my business. This is so practical for me, people at work. Everything is very universal. It's just the lens you put it through. So um, so the book, again, has it touches on work. It touches on relationships. It touches on how to feel powerful when you're alone. You know, a lot of people, it's really for people who are starting their second act, whenever that second mm-hmm. act is. For me, it was, you know, at the age I am now. Um, and for other people, 27, 27. And for some people, um, it could be in their sixties. You know, um, one of my friends said to me, I was on my friend's podcast and he said, this book would be great for my mom. And he thought I would be offended, but I wasn't. I said, that would be amazing. If everyone's mom read it, you know, it would be so exciting for me. I I would like my mom's friends to read it and be like, Oh, like, I like, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say what I mean. I'm gonna, like, why don't I deserve this? Or I'm going to throw, you know, I, that's what I want. I, it's not, it's, it's not for kinky people. It's not kinky enough for kinky people necessarily, but it's for people who want us, who feel like they deserve to look at life in sort of a different way. And if you are a kinky person, um, it's a great gift for a relative who wants to know what your, what your life is sort of like. Right, right. Um, it paints it, it. I hope it paints the women in a very positive light. They're their philosophy is all throughout the book and they, they changed, they changed my life. I can't explain it. They just thought they were fantastic. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in communication, empathy, kindness, being open-minded and just being the best person I can be. And for some reason, just the way they talked and you wouldn't think that they were so nice and generous. You think of a dominatrix as being very cruel and very mean and bossy. And they were like empathy athletes. Um, and they, they really blew my mind. So Okay, well, great. Um, and of course, folks at bobmurphyshow.com slash 93, we'll have links to all Lindsay's stuff. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah. that time? Okay. You Because you, you mentioned how you'd worked at some of those various news organizations. Yeah. So I'm not asking you to burn any bridges or anything, but there are some both on the left and right who think there's like a, a corporate media narrative that, you know, echoes the line of the government. Do you do you have any thoughts on, on that general topic like did you see that or is it like nah it's just they sell you know this is what's going to sell the most newspapers that's what causes the headlines or you get what i mean like for, for sure. people who I, think I, it's I, all controlled i i 
I mean, I was on like the front lines of it. So it was Mm. just what's next, what's next, what's next. I never felt there was any, no, there's no government bias. I mean, that's crazy. I, I, it was just like, like news breaks and you report it, you know, and I was never an editorial writer. I just was breaking news. I also worked in like lifestyles, but after a while I ended up moving to more of like soft news, but where the stuff I did, we know the plane crashes. You write about the plane crash. Mm -hmm. Um, If there's a debate, you write about the debate and, and, this was also years ago. But maybe Dick Cheney made the plane crash. Did you ever think of that? <laughs> that wasn't my beat. That was not okay. my beat. But when I, I worked the, the election in 2008, um, which was very stressful, um, it was the will Hillary concede or won't she? That was very, that was one of the most stressful nights of my entire life. Um, it was a time I felt like um, when Sarah Palin was elected, was chosen as the candidate that people were kind of piling on her uh more than they had to. Um, she sort of didn't need, I don't know. But at the time, I was also very, I was sort of ready to leave news at the time. But there was a gleefulness of, of um, that I'd found unsettling. I find the gleefulness of the news cycle very, the schadenfreude, uh, mm-hmm. very unsettling. And, and, and I left. Um, I, don't, I don't get joy if, I don't like to make fun of people. I just, I, I'm very fact-oriented. Just give me the data. Um, I like listening to smart people talk um, on both sides um, and I, I can formulate my own opinions. So I wasn't really, if I, I'm, I'm, I didn't like the, I couldn't handle the 24 hour news. Mock. Right. It, 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 it hurt my spirit. And then when I went to the daily news, which I love the daily news, I, I have a little bit of a tabloid spirit, uh, but I ended up moving toward the lifestyle side. And then I felt I didn't like that. I liked writing about health and I liked writing about, but I, but I was also writing about the Kardashians and sure. I was just doing unpaid PR for the Kardashians for Rihanna. And, and I didn't need to be doing that. Um, the other thing I want to say before we go is um, I recently put out a mini series on spent um, to, as a tie into the book. Um, it's a sex and money mini series and I'm really proud of it. And it was, uh, I, it was a mini series and I spoke to Stoya. She's a very um, popular adult film star mm-hmm. And we and she was incredible. She talked about a lot of interesting financial stuff about royalties, about um, about various payment apps. It was a great interview. Um, I spoke to two dominatrixes on another episode. They were talked about uh, their own business model and how they came to do what they do. They were, they were incredible. I spoke to an economist about risk, um, which was you know, why we pay more to take on less of it. And mm-hmm. I spoke to a CEO of a um, of a company called Dame, which is a sex toy um, company, and we talked about. Uh, why her her particular niche, they, why she has trouble advertising on Facebook and why Facebook and some of the social media platforms have um, they have certain kind of nebulous rules about who gets to who gets to advertise and who doesn't. Right. And uh, so it was a really great podcast and it kind of encapsulates this marriage of money and 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 sort of sexy stuff. But um, but I'm not a kink writer. I'm a money writer. So I wanted to kind of steer the ship back to the area that I'm more comfortable with. But uh, you can't go wrong with sex and money. It's it's two things that, what do I say? Two things that everyone wants more of and no one knows how to get more of. <laughs> okay, that's good. Okay, yeah, so folks, again, at bobmurphyshow.com slash 93, we'll have links to Lindsay's book, her podcast, and we'll focus on that mini series in particular, and of course, the stand-up clip she had. Well, Lindsay, thanks so much for being part of the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you, this was great. All right, thanks. And folks, we'll uh, catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. 
For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.